Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We will jump into chapter 20 today, which leaves us with what? Only three chapters. I mean, we have been in the book of Revelation for approximately three and a half months exploring this book verse by verse. And as I get questions from some of you, as I've said before, these questions are addressed, addressed within the stream of the context to which to best address them. One of the things that has come up, and it's certainly something that Michael Barber takes up, is this whole idea of the battle between good and evil and, and why evil, something we've talked about before, but how God uses evil. Huh? So before we get into chapter 20, I want to speak to this a little bit especially in the light of the last three chapters as we have been hitting it. Because in Revelation chapters 17 to 19, we read about an evil city that is destroyed for its wickedness, huh? As we saw, Babylon was literally wrapped up with her own wealth. The harlot arrayed herself with the items that she traded. She was seductive, even for a moment to John. Then he saw the beast she was riding on. Her wealth and her sinfulness went hand in hand. My friends, one of the things that we have come to see is that nations cannot trust in their own wealth and strength. Countries can easily become wanton in their wealth as the wicked city in Revelation. The story is played out over and over again throughout history, is it not? If it's Greece, if it's Rome, pick your country pick your civilization, there you have it. No nation, no kingdom, no country can last forever. Downfall is usually the result of what? But arrogance and wantonness. Wealthy nations seemingly engorge themselves only to be destroyed. Yet, there always remains the chance to repent. Think of Nineveh, how it repented when Jonah brought a warning of God's impending judgment. In fact, what we are made to see, my friends, is that the threat of destruction is actually part of God's mercy and that it can prompt us to repentance. Now, getting to some of your question and, and observation and, and drawing here again from Michael Barber. Listen to what Michael Barber has to say here. The terrorist actions in New York, the Pentagon, and Pennsylvania on September 11, 2001 marked the saddest day in American history, if it wasn't the day we just commemorated uh, December 7, 1941, Pearl Harbor. In May 2004, a similar attack shocked Spain. Thousands of good men and women lost their lives. Some even gave their lives heroically, rescuing others. Indeed, America and Spain witnessed horrific evil. Yet, what does Michael Barber say here? They also witnessed amazing pious virtue. You see, my friends, in the aftermath of these events both America and Spain turned out for public vigils. In the aftermath of these events, churches became jam-packed. Watching all of this, maybe for some of you, the image of the ancient city of Nineveh came to mind. Specifically how terrible events can teach us a valuable lesson. 
we are not immune from devastation. However, out of the ashes, God can raise us up if we will ask him and if we will be faithful. I'm also reminded of something someone told me about the events soon after 9-1-1, that in the city of New York, a city that has been besieged, absolutely besieged by the abortion industry, did not see a single abortion for one whole week. I'm now talking about the week after 9-1-1. God's merciful love is a love that makes something good out of the most terrible evil. It can become an opportunity for grace. Furthermore, we should add in the light of our discussion yesterday that Scripture gives us a model for how to offer up our suffering in repentance. And of course, I'm speaking of the Mass. When we find ourselves in a situation that is dreadful, we can carry our crosses like Christ if we turn our affliction into a sacrificial offering. And as we talked about yesterday, this is done through our Torah, our Thanksgiving feast of the new covenant, the Eucharist. The actuoso participatio, or the active participation at Mass, then is not primarily expressed through some external enthusiastic responses or seeing while that's part of it, but rather by placing ourselves spiritually on the altar with Christ. Our external responses essentially express this offering. So when we talk about how God works in the muck and the mire, we have to consider our disposition and how we are called to open ourselves to God, mindful that He Himself on the cross did what but forgave in the most profound way and in so doing, opened up all sorts of new vistas for you and I, my friends, that we too might walk down a new path when we forgive or when we accept suffering willingly, understanding that God wishes to do something with it, and He will when we unite it to Him. Okay, how about chapter 20? This chapter that once again has us talking about Satan. We have been talking about Satan quite a bit, more so than I can ever remember in any one particular study, and this study, of course, being on the book of Revelation. Before we jump into the verses, there's a reflection that Michael Barber offers up that we need to get into, and it's certainly just the more general sense of what this thousand-year reign is all about. It's kind of the, as Michael Barber puts it, the perennial millennial question. You know, Revelation 20's description of the thousand-year reign has traditionally been one of the most difficult parts of the apocalypse to understand. Many people in the early church even believed that this cryptic teaching was too strange for the Bible and concluded, therefore, that the book of Revelation should be left out of the New Testament. I mean, think about that. Think about everything that we have been talking about over the last three and a half months and that just being discarded. This is why we take a deep breath, <laughs> we recollect, and we value something for what it is within the larger context. And as you now know, when you put the book of Revelation within the larger context of divine revelation, what do you have? But a book that is quintessential, a book that ties together all of divine revelation, huh? So, of course, we know that the church recognized it as a legitimately inspired book and placed it in the canon of the New Testament there at the end of the 4th century, the Council of Hippo, 395 A.D., one of the inspired 27 books of the New Testament. Nonetheless, it is still a challenge 
to explain various aspects of Revelation 20. A common interpretation among many uh, Christian circles today is that Christ will return and set up some kind of earthly reign. Yet as Christ explains in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingship is not of this world. So we can't take this thousand-year reign and put it in some secular context, no. For this very reason, it seems unlikely that John meant to say that Christ would set up an earthly kingdom. Instead, we will see how John's use of symbols and covenant terminology envisions something much more than just a future reality. Revelation 20 gives us a kind of panoramic view of salvation history. In short, Revelation 20, we could say, is the summary of the story of Jerusalem established by David, who began to reign in 1000 BC. This should not surprise you given the attention we have been giving to not only Jerusalem, but certainly the Old Testament as well. Before we go on, we should also add, traditionally, Catholics have understood the thousand-year reign as referring to the age of the church. And in this interpretation, the thousand years are understood symbolically. The thousand years stand for the time Christ would reign through the church, from the time of his first coming to the time of his second coming. Satan is restrained. The power of the sacraments administered by the church hold him at bay. The first resurrection, the one prior to the final resurrection at the end of time, refers to the saints being taken up to God. At the end of time, there will be a final confrontation between the Lord and the devil wherein God will crush Satan and for all. And certainly, this view is well attested to in the fathers of the church. This is something that certainly the church agrees with. Nevertheless, what we will be talking about and, and what many commentaries uh, point out is there's much to add to this view, especially as it can be found in Michael Barber's work coming soon. The interpretation laid out here understands the millennium in terms of what? but the covenant established with David. Remember, if you're to go back into 2 Samuel 7, what is it, uh, verses 10 and following, God establishes his covenant with David, and it's one of the great covenants. If you were to fast forward to Matthew, how does he open up his gospel? Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, highlighting the great covenant with Abraham, and Jesus, the son of David, highlighting the importance of the Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant is very, very important. And since the Davidic covenant is the Old Testament blueprint for the new covenant, the Davidic kingdom then foreshadows the age of the church. Michael Barber gives us a nice example here. In Solomon's concern to include all nations, we have a foreshadowing of the way the devil will be bound and chained through the ministry of the church. Likewise, just as the devil was loosed to wreak havoc in the last days of the Old Testament world, which climaxed in the destruction of the temple, so too will he be loosed at the end of time. You know, I have received so many questions, or maybe I should better say observations, about how you are taken by the seamlessness between the Old and New Testament, between the Old and New Covenant, how not one verse can really be understood outside of the Old Covenant. And you're right. You're right, because if the New Covenant is about the fulfillment of the promise, right? <laughs> how can you possibly understand the totality of that reality minus the promise? Because if all we had was the fulfillment and no promise, then how would we know what it is fulfilling? 
So there's a reason why, for example, Paul quotes the Old Testament over 500 times because he's busy showing how Christ fulfills the Old Testament, how Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament, and moreover, how he not only fulfills, but at once transforms, and how we are called to share in this transformation, if you will, by participating in his very life and love. I speak to that because as I get your feedback on this very point, it's, it's good from time to time to just stop and say, hey, <laughs> I hear you, and, and I see those emails, and yes, I agree. I could not agree more that the, this is very important to be interpreting the new in light of the old and the, and the old in light of the new. Okay, with that, let us jump into chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. These verses that speak to how Satan is bound for a thousand years. So if you want to flip to verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. All right, so the devil is locked in the pit, quote-unquote, by an angel, who uses the key to imprison him. Now, these two images were absolutely unequivocally loaded with meaning to Jewish readers. Understanding these two terms will be essential to unlocking the meaning of this passage. Now, in another program, we saw how the key is drawn from Isaiah 22, right, where it represents the authority of the Davidic kingdom. If you were to go back to our treatment of uh, chapter 3, okay, we kind of explore that. Indeed, John specifically identifies it as the what? Key of David in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, it is also referred to as the key of death and Hades, here, the key is linked with the pit. This pit, which is also called the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, is a word used in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition for the watery place of the dead. That is the underworld, or maybe the word you might be more familiar with, Sheol, Sheol. Jonah speaks of how he was saved from it. Huh? <laughs> what did we read in Jonah chapter 2? If you were to flip, go ahead and flip your Bibles. Jonah. Jonah uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 3 and 5 to 6. Listen to what we read there. I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice, for thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me, all thy waves and thy billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me. The deep was round about me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Rich passage there that really casts more light upon <laughs> what we intend to mean when talking about the pit. This pit, or abyss, was also connected with the temple in Jewish literature, 
although it is not recorded in sacred scripture. The temple, according to Jewish tradition, was built by David's son Solomon on top of a special rock called the foundation stone. Now, this stone was said to be the plug to the netherworld. Anyone who has ever seen a picture of Jerusalem can hardly miss the famous Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock in which this famous stone or rock is located. Now, in keeping with this, rabbinic tradition passed on the story of how David almost inadvertently unleashed the waters of Sheol when he came to lay the foundation for the temple, which his son later built. Now, there's an author by the name of Ben Meyer who talks about this. Listen to what Ben Meyer has to say. When King David came to dig the foundation for the temple around the foundation stone, he dug to a depth of 1,500 cubits. At length, he found a projecting stone which he wished to remove. But the stone said to him, This thou cannot do. David asked, Why not? And it answered, I cover the mouth of the abyss. But David would not hearken and wished to remove the stone. And as he tried, the waters of the abyss rose in great torrents, which appeared to be about to flood the world. Then David began to sing the song of degrees from the book of Psalms, and the waters of the abyss returned to their place. Fascinating. Now what's interesting here, the blood of the sacrifices was said to run down the shafts under the altar onto the foundation stone below, so that the blood would cover those in Sheol. Now, Ben Meyer, that famous scholar, showed how this tradition formed the background for Jesus' words in Matthew 16. There, Jesus builds his church on Peter the rock, as Solomon built the temple on the foundation stone. Moreover, he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom, which gives him power over what? But the gates of Hades. And in so doing, grants him the power to free souls from the power of the devil. You see what's going on there? That link, you can certainly see how that passage could easily be caught up in what uh, Ben Meyer is talking about there. Now, whether or not David actually built the temple on a foundation stone that plugged up some watery pit is not the essential point. What is important is the truth this symbolism conveys. When God swore to David his covenant oath, establishing his kingdom, God brought to a partial fulfillment all the promises of the Old Testament. And through David's son, the effects of original sin would begin to be reversed. Jerusalem would become the center from which God's law would be taken to the nations. As the Lord promised, all nations would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And of course, that again goes back to the great covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 12. Now, when David understood this, he exclaimed what? Going back to that Davidic covenant, God has shown me a law for mankind, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 19. Following in his footsteps, Solomon began to teach the Gentiles, who came from all over to hear of his great wisdom. Because of God's oath, Satan was bound to deceive the nations no more. Which brings us to the angel's chain. Just as the key was symbolic of the Davidic kingdom, so also a chain was associated with Solomon's courtroom. Here again, we have an important connection to the Dome of the Rock, something that Michael Barber uh, draws out. Or where, 
right near the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, there is a smaller shrine called the Dome of the Chain. This building commemorates an ancient legend which says that a chain was used by the king in determining the truth of a witness testimony. The person under oath would hold on to the chain and give his sworn statement. And if he were not telling the truth, a link would fall so that all would know the lie he had told. My dear friends, the image of the devil being bound for a thousand years, therefore, could easily be seen as a depiction of the incredible power of God's oath to establish the Davidic kingdom, through which the nations would be taught and the devil's deceptions unmasked. Indeed, the kingdom of David stood for 1,000 years from David to Christ since it was established in about 1,000 BC. Furthermore, it is interesting to note that the devil is bound, bound, a term that is often connected with exorcism. You have heard me talk about this before. You know, this is important because Solomon was well known in Jewish tradition as the great exorcist who ever lived. The Greek word for exorcism exorcia or exhorkia literally means to oath out. Thus, because of God's sworn oath to David, the devil was exorcised, right, or bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations. The millennium, therefore, does not bespeak necessarily of a future age of an earthly kingdom, but rather in another context summarizes God's work in salvation history. Certainly, this is hinted at from the very beginning, since it is an angel who binds the devil, right? Angels were those through whom the old covenant economy was administered. This is why the author of Hebrews explains that the new covenant is superior to the old. The new is mediated by Christ, whereas in times past it was mediated by angels. Okay, so far we have seen that the 1,000-year reign relates to God's use of the Davidic kingdom and the king's own city, Jerusalem, in his plan to save the nations. The image of the devil being loosed for a short time at the end of the thousand years, therefore, could be understood in connection with this. In fact, as we have seen, Jerusalem became increasingly evil in the first century, with its wickedness reaching a peak, that time of destruction in the year 70 AD. You know, Jesus himself testifies against the wickedness of his own generation, comparing it to the final state of wickedness. If you were to go to Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45, what do we read there? When the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So shall it also be with this evil generation. Wow. If you were to turn to the man we have leaned into on more than one occasion, Josephus, he writes of his own people, nor did any other age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was. From the beginning of the world, therefore, as Michael Barber and others again conclude at the end of the thousand years, Satan was let loose to wreak his worst damage. Okay, all of that being said, here we are 2,000 years later. What do we do? Where, where do we go? I want to turn to a reflection uh, from Scott Hahn and Lamb's Supper. 
I'm trying to go back to Lamb's Supper more often. We have kind of neglected it. We are to turn to page 131 of his work. He poses the question, are we to fight or flight? And listen to what he says. Facing such opposition, and he just spoke about the opposition being evil, of course, we must choose either fight or flight. This is a basic human instinct. Moreover, after a superficial evaluation of our own apparent resources and the enemy's apparent resources, flight might seem like a reasonable choice. According to the spiritual masters, however, flight is not a real option. Why? Well, as Dom Lorenzo Scopoli wrote in his great work, The Spiritual Combat, this war is unavoidable and you must either fight or die. The obstinacy of your enemies is so fierce that peace and arbitration with them is utterly impossible. In short, we can run from evil, but we can't hide. <laughs> in short, in the words of Scott Hahn, we can run from evil, but we can't hide. Really a point we have already explored as it relates to some other themes in the book of Revelation. Moreover, as Scott Hahn explores, we cannot ascend to heaven if we flee the battle. God has destined us, the church, to be the bride of the Lamb. Yet we cannot rule if we do not first conquer the forces that oppose us, the powers who are pretenders to our throne. Again, that's Scott Hahn, and he poses a question here, and I think an important question, the question that lies before all of us, what are we to do? Well, we should take a look around us. And after lifting the veil of mere human sight, what do we come to see? That we are to be encouraged. St. Michael the Archangel, heaven's fiercest warrior, is our untiring and unbeatable ally. We are assured of this. The battle will rage on. How are we going to enter into the fray of this battle? But as I talked about yesterday evening, by putting on the armor of God. Scott on, he quotes one Father Scopoli here, and he says, If the fury of your enemies is great and their numbers overwhelming, the love which God holds for you is infinitely greater. The angel who protects you and the saints who intercede for you are more numerous. Huh? So when we talk about putting on the armor of God, what are we talking about? Well, participating in the very life of God. That life, which is love, sacrificial love. A truth which cannot be overrun by Satan because it is an absolute truth. That sacrificial love will always win. So again, the deeper we go into the life of the church, the sacramental church, the deeper we go into a life of prayer, the more we live out the moral virtues of faith, hope, and love, the more we sync up our decision-making with the cardinal virtues of fortitude, justice, temperance, and prudence, will we begin to win the battle. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.